Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Mike P., Luke A., Paul M., Jackie A., and Dustin J. On the program today is a new guest of a company that has been with us in the past. Mr. Brian Reensboro is with us on the program. Brian is the president and CEO of Reconnaissance Energy Africa, an oil and gas exploration-focused company that is advancing work in Namibia's Kavango Basin of which the company holds concessions over about 8 million acres. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol R-E-C-O, as well as on the US OTC markets under the symbol R-E-C-A-F. Brian, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Brian, and get an introduction from you and to kick things off here. Uh, And given it is your first time on the program, Why don't you give us a flavor for your background and experience in the oil and gas sector, as well as within this junior natural resource business? Sure. No, thank you. So I've been uh, been in the oil and gas sector for about 34 years. Uh, I am Canadian. I started my educational career uh, in Eastern Canada, of all places, and then migrated out to to Calgary and started my my oil oil industry experience uh, there. Um, Mobile Oil hired me way back in the mid-80s and progressively moved me further and further south until I landed in Dallas um, and worked in their uh, Global New Ventures group for for a number of years, working around the world, South America, bit, North Sea, uh, Russia. Uh, Spent uh, a few months going around the world talking to all their divisions on some creative ideas and how to improve exploration techniques. Um, which was very fun. And then um, after mobile, I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Texas here in Austin, where I um, studied some rocks over in the North Sea, uh, Rift Basin over there. And then from there, I came back and um, a Canadian company called uh, uh, Canadian Oxy, uh, which is now um, was subsequently named uh, Nexon, hired me. And um, I worked Asia uh, for a bunch of years, Australia, Indonesia, Vietnam, all those frontier bases in that part of the world and really helped them sort of get an idea how to build an exploration program in that part of the world, which was, which was fun, fascinating uh, geologically uh, part of the world. Uh, in 1997, they sent me down to Dallas, Texas to, to look at something called Deepwater Gulf, Mexico. As a young geologist, I, I sat in the office and, and uh, scripted a business plan to build a business unit for them. And about 12 years later and uh, 17 discoveries later, I was president CEO of the U.S. company uh, and built a, a very vibrant, uh, recognized and deep water business unit. Lots of discoveries there. And that last well I drilled with them at Nexon was a, a prospect that ended up being discovery called Appomattox which was about a 700 million barrel discovery, uh, one of the largest ones in the Gulf of Mexico. At that point in time, I was thinking about doing my own company, uh, but private equity was after me pretty heavily uh, in that period of time. That was 2010 period. 
and I ended up um, talking to all the big firms actually. And Warburg Pincus, a PE firm out of New York, was the one that sort of really resonated with me. And they they put an offer on the table. It was fairly unique at the time, in that they um, offered uh, what's called executive residence. What that is is they said, Brian, come on on board. Um, we'll give you um, funding for a year, and think about where you want to write a business plan, and we'll fund you. So I did that. Went into a blank uh, a room again with a blank sheet of paper again and uh, wrote a business plan to build uh, another business on my own in deep water Gulf of Mexico. And uh, it was a billion dollar business plan at the time, 2011. And this was right after the BP Macondo spill, if you remember it. So the Gulf of Mexico in that period of time was under moratorium and just came out of it. And I really felt the industry was dislocated from itself and there was a real niche uh, for a, a well-funded technically astute company to enter the market. So I wrote a billion dollar business plan, Warburg funded part of it and went to market in 2011 and 12 and it was oversubscribed and I raised $1.2 billion uh, to start that company. And uh, that company still remains the, the high watermark for private funding for a company with no assets. Uh, we had no assets, just a, a business plan with a great strategy and a great team behind me. So we, we embarked on the um, business plan. We drilled the dry hole first, and then uh, four consecutive discoveries after that, one of which was a giant discovery called Anchor, which is about a five to 600 million barrel discovery in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, that was 2012, and then two years later, I went out and did a second raise of 1.4 billion to help fund those projects uh, through to development. Uh, so the company in its entirety had 2.4 billion behind it to to uh, develop the big discoveries and and grow the company. Um, we ended up selling the company in pieces 2018 during the the really tough downturn, uh, and then uh, I spent the last few years trying to to buy production in deep water Gulf of Mexico, being funded by Carlisle and some other marketers and putting some pretty hefty bids on on a bunch of projects. So. That landed me here to, um, to recon. I took this job, um, really looking at it as a, as another startup, quite honestly. And, you know, I've done two of these before, and the board asked me to come into this opportunity to to really reset the strategy, reset the operational platform, um, look at the team, the talent, and and bring in my own team. Uh, so, you know, I did look at this as a this is an opportunity to come in and and reshape a company, even though it's a publicly listed company with an asset already, I viewed it as a, as a startup and approached it that way. And I've been out for six months. So I forgot to mention my educational background. I did a, um, a stand up at Harvard Business School while at, um, while at uh, Nexon. So uh, that's, that's in the middle of all that. What a depth of experience, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Certainly lots of different places, and it looks like you've been in a lot of these uh, areas for oil and gas globally. And so you've seen this industry's ups and downs and the cycles, and Macondo was one heck yeah. of a monster, of course. It was too bad to see what happened with there as well and see what the real potential of Macondo would have been, and what a time. And then just, I think, yeah. too, people... Yeah tend to forget, uh, you know, you, you do have, every sector has accidents, every industry has accidents, life has yeah. accidents. Um, but when you look at all the successful operations around the world, people tend to forget how much success there is versus some of the problems that arise. And so keep it in context, right? And uh, let me ask you this, 
what compelled you to come and look at Recon Energy Africa and the assets that it had? Uh, multi-dimensional, actually. You know, the, the first one, as I mentioned, is that I, I really looked at this as a as a startup, an opportunity to come in and and reshape a company and turn it around. Quite honestly, uh, top to bottom, bring on my own team, uh, reset the strategy, reset the performance expectations, all of that. Uh, and I'd done this twice before. Um, the two previous ones were from a blank sheet of paper. This one's a little bit different because it has some history. But corporately, I was given the mandate to to straighten this straighten the ship out, basically. So the corporate standpoint, I felt really comfortable in, in, in taking the role on, given my, my background. Now, technically, I, I had a chance to look at the data prior to accepting the role. And I went in, I looked at seismic data, I looked at all the well logs. And a, a couple of things uh, struck me. First is, you know, very rarely in this, in this sector, in this day and age, do you get an opportunity to go in and, and explore an entire sedimentary basin under one leasehold. Um, you know, the industry right now is very fragmented. You know, it's, it's, often it's a basin like this is cut into dozens of smaller blocks and you have to work your way and work with partners. But here we have 6 million acres in Namibia and the entire rift basin and a full belt uh, under one concession. So I felt that as a fairly appealing opportunity this juncture in my career. And then secondly, when I started looking at the data, you know, the company drilled three wells a few years ago, and they drilled them blind. Two of them were blind, actually, without seismic data. But yet, these wells had oil shows in them. Uh, all the cores they took in one of the wells had oil saturations to some degree. And they were drilled on geological traps, which showed me the petroleum system was working in this rift play. So, um, you know, that raised some alarm bells from my standpoint that something seemed to be cooking here. And then thirdly, is that, you know, the, the concession has eight to 10 gas seeps on it uh, with oil content in it. That's really unique to have. I mean, this, um, this is what explorers did, you know, 30, 40 years ago, looking for giant oil fields uh, in Indonesia and the Middle East, where they went around and traced uh, oil seeps and uh, surface anticlines and, and drilled for giant structures. So having those gas seeps in around a rift base and gas seep and around the fold belt. Again, um, uh, checking out the box for me, that's something uh, maybe cooking in this, in this basin. And then the last one, when I looked at seismic data, the fold belt, the Demera fold belt, which um, they really just discovered last year when they shot seismic, was eye-popping. Uh, this is a fold belt that hadn't really been imaged before. Uh, it's buried, so you can't see it on surface. Uh, but the seismic imaging was was very clear, uh, and these are large structures, uh, and they're untested. You know, when I stacked the, the above ground issues, uh, the, the corporate issues, Namibia being uh, such a, a focus uh, from the industry standpoint, investment, uh, a safe place to do business, um, is a very pro-business uh, government there. Uh, and then the subsurface elements, uh, it all stacked up to something that I really felt I could uh, turn the ship around and, and find a lot of oil. So that's, that's why I did it. Brian, thank you for that. And it is quite compelling, uh, some of the reasons you mentioned, and you found a lot of things that certainly are compelling to me as well. And so looking forward mm -hmm. to seeing some of these things. And I'd like to dive into, before we yeah. get into Recon Africa in more detail for a moment, yeah. I'd, I'd like to just step back, Brian, for a moment and just ask about your views of the broader oil and gas market as things stand today 
in terms of the economics of where we are with current prices, pressures facing the industry, and really how it has evolved since you entered this business, because you've been here for quite some time. Yeah. No, the economics, I feel um, uh, I'm a big oil advocate. I've explored for oil all my career. So, um, and I think we'll find oil in this concession. You know, the pricing we're at right now is, pro is a great price range, 70 to $80 um, WTI range or, or 85 to 90 Brent. That's a very comfortable range to explore in. Uh, and I think the price will sort of stay in that range for the foreseeable future bounce around a bit with local supply demand disruptions and geopolitical stuff that always seems to happen. But that norm will be in that range, I believe, 70 to $75, which is a, a very comfortable um, spot for the oil and gas sector. Now we'll run our economics very differently. We'll we'll run a bit, we'll typically run our economics at a say a 60 or $65 flat price stack to, to ensure this cushion going forward. There's lots of economics in that type of price range as well. And then we'll also stress the economics down to see what the break even is. And typically, what I like to do is see break even down in the low 40s uh, the, uh, per barrel WTI or, or Brent. Uh, and that shows me that the project has a lot of resilience. And I don't believe oil is going to go down to that level for a sustained period of time. You may see a dip for, for some odd reason, but uh, the, the supply demand just doesn't dictate it's going to be there for a sustainable period. So the, the spot rate is good right now. I think anything higher, uh, I think companies um, get inefficient. You know, I think companies uh, operate at the highest efficiency when the price of oil is a little bit um, lower, actually, and capital budgets are a little bit more constrained. The industry's had, and this industry tends to be very elastic in spending, which is not great. Um, but I, I think this price range in right now is um, a very good price range for economic development of, of uh, which should be most conventional and unconventional resources. Excellent. Just one more topic before we get into Recon Africa. You know, many people mm -hmm. today say the phrase fossil fuels, but probably don't think yeah. or even stop to think about what that really means. And instead of thinking that there's a tendency to lean on feelings, if you will, instead. And yeah. what yeah. prevails is that oil and gas is some unnatural occurrence, Brian, that is, you know, generally does more yeah. evil than good. First, talk about this energy, you know, how it comes from the passage of time and, of course, the fossil reference in the phrase. And then give us your view on the importance of petroleum products in our daily lives, Brian, and how these forms of energy have brought yeah. substantial numbers of people, less, of course, failed government policy, out of essentially peasantry and poverty. Yeah, so three components. Let me, brought, let me first talk about the technical side that you asked of fossil fuels. And then let me talk about the scale that's required to bring those fossil fuels to market. And then let me talk about the end product, which is what people use uh, on, on the value chain. So fossil fuels, they, they, um, they're, they're actually are generated um, millions and millions of years ago by plants that are deposited and buried um, over long, long periods of time, sometimes hundreds of millions of years actually uh, to great depths. And those plants, the carbons are transformed into hydrocarbons with temperature and, and time, quite honestly, and pressure. Uh, they turn into kerogen and then into oil, and the oil migrates uh, from those, those are called source rocks. Uh, they migrate then into reservoirs and, and settle there into geological structures where people like us explorationists try to 
put together the pieces of the puzzle to try to figure out where these geological structures are and then drill them. And we drill into reservoirs, which will be typically porous rocks in the subsurface, sandstones often, sometimes carbonates. And uh, those rocks have small pores in them. And those pores will contain the hydrocarbons and they're typically connected. And when you drill down and, and put a, um, a drill pipe in it, the pressure in the rocks will push the hydrocarbons out into the pipe up to the surface and we produce that. Now the geological process from the plants to being buried and being cooked, um, that's millions and millions and millions of years for that to occur. And you know, oil companies like ourselves, we, we employ geoscientists and geologists and geophysicists and experts to try to figure out that whole process by, by means of using seismic data and, and well data to, to really figure out that geological history and, and put it all back together so we can predict where we want to invest to drill going forward. Uh, it's not easy. I mean, it's uh, mother nature can throw you some nasty curveballs at you when you think you have it all figured out. But we are, we are drilling wells in, in this case here uh, in the Camango Basin down to about 13,000 feet. And we're drilling into rocks that are, you know, seven, 800 million years old uh, and trying to figure out the geology of it. Now, luckily the seismic data we have is, is good, good quality and we can see these structures quite well. But we're trying to piece together that geological history uh, from when it was formed and when the source rocks were deposited to when they were cooked, when they were migrated and when they were accumulated and make sure it stays there. And then, and then we drill it. And then the, the other part of the, the, the whole value chain of hydrocarbons to end product is that middle part, which is commercialization. And what a lot of people don't understand about fossil fuels is just the, the, the time and money is required to bring a barrel of oil to market. And it, it varies drastically by jurisdiction and by where you may be investing. Uh, but I'll take two examples. I'll take offshore and I'll take onshore. And I'll use Namibia as, as the, the, the case study. And Namibia has been a great success story in the last three or four years offshore with um, remarkably large discoveries by major oil companies in deep water at 10, 12,000 feet of water, and then drilling down another 12 to 15,000 feet beneath that. And they're offshore by you know, maybe hundred miles. To, to get those resources, even though they've found billions of barrels of oil, that will take anywhere from six to eight to 10 years to bring that to market. What I mean by that, they have to drill wells uh, find the field, they have to shoot the seismic, they have to drill more wells uh, to appraise the field. Keep in mind, each one of these wells offshore will cost about $100 million a piece. So they have to drill wells to appraise it, size it up. Then they have to come to a commercial decision that they're going to invest to build a facility. And building a facility offshore can take billions of dollars, typically and then maybe it'll be anywhere from three to $5 billion to build the facility and about three to five years to actually do it. And then they have to either build a pipeline to the shoreline or, or have a floating facility offshore to take that product to market. That process from drilling exploration well to appraisal, to building the facility, to bringing your product to market is, is a long period of time and a lot, a lot of capital. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, how much time and investment it takes to bring 
some of these large discoveries to, to market. It's very much like a pharmaceutical uh, business. You know, pharmaceutical companies have, have a big J curve as well on experimental drugs. You know, lots of shots on goal, lots of failures actually. Uh, but the big ones that hit, uh, you know, companies can, can make billions off it. But going through clinical trials can take three, five, seven years. So the oil industry is not that different, actually. When you look at the fundamentals, you know, lots of shots on goals, lots of failures. The big ones pay for all the failures, but the J curve is really large and the time to get to market is, is really large. Now I'll compare that to onshore. Onshore is a little bit different, uh, but there's still large capital required to bring it to market. You know, luckily um, for Namibia and our concession, our wells are not as expensive as offshore. These are $6 million wells and $11 million in Namera. So a fraction of the cost of offshore. If we find something, I'll go over the economics and later on the podcast, uh, we feel we can have oil on production within about two years of discovery. And that's a really short cycle time for the oil and gas sector. And some of the infrastructure is already there in this part of the country, luckily. We don't have to build railroads or, or new highways so we can use existing infrastructure, which really helps that cycle time. But still, it's a, it's a two to three year period to from drilling exploration well to bring it on production. Now, Recon's actually had this acreage of three or four years. We've, we've spent a few years accumulating seismic and other subsurface data, so the, the cycle time actually is a longer as well. It'll be a number of years before we bring oil on, but when it comes on, as it does in deep water, uh, these are extremely profitable and they kick off a ton of cash. That's the middle part of the, the, the cycle that a lot of folks don't, don't realize um, what's required to bring a barrel of oil to, to market once you figure out where it is from a geological standpoint. Now, a lot of people don't realize, you know, hydrocarbons, uh, petro, fossil fuels touch almost every part of our lives, from plastics to, of course, fuels in your car, uh, almost everything you run in the household um, requires some element of fossil fuels. Uh, I believe, and a lot of uh, experts and, and a number of sectors of tacity, the energy industry believe there is going to be a transition eventually to renewables, but uh, fossil fuels are going to be here for, for a few more decades uh, at least because of that transition. And the world needs uh, this type of energy to, to move uh, forward. But also what we see, and again, I want to focus back on Namibia, for a developing country like it, resources like they found offshore what we think we're going to find onshore is transformational it's transformational for the country it's transformational for communities it's transformational for families who, who've been in, in a, a really really tough spot for for many years you know we have a very very strong local content philosophy when we start developing of employing people uh, up where we have our concession the unemployment rate up in this part of namibia is hovering around 50 percent so uh, we have very strong government support, of course, in um, Windhoek all the way up to the local governments. But uh, we plan to employ a lot of people we, if we find what we think we're going to find in this area. And this will, this will transform communities uh, fundamentally uh, that they've never seen before. The offshore will as well. Uh, it'll take a longer period of time. Uh, but, you know, I, I believe Namibia has a chance to be a, a major producing country in the world over the next decade. Uh, it may take that long, um, but they have the resources there to do it. Um, they just have to be patient and very diligent on, on how to 
evolve the energy sector, but it's it's clearly on the right track right now. So Brian, really good response here. I think it explains or, or demonstrates some of your knowledge onshore, offshore, and, and how this cycle goes and basically the commercial cycle of petroleum products, oil and gas industry, and how important it is. Because again, I struggle on a few things. And some of those things I was thinking when you responded was, you know, first of all, I still cannot see a line of sight to actual 100% transition away from fossil fuels because as yeah. you said, there's so many products in our yeah. daily lives besides vehicles and besides energy generation. So, you know, coal generation, gas generation for energy purposes, even fuel and cars, which again, is a whole different conversation where I think there's some problems in the thinking that uh, there's control problems that exist. And then there's also some other issues with respect to complete elimination of petro vehicles, internal combustion engine. And the market doesn't necessarily support it either, because as you know, there's a lot of people on this planet that don't have access to reliable forms of energy. The petro vehicle, if you will, it's, it's a tough one to get rid of. Tell that other billion plus people, it's tough to really dictate that. You and I both know the renewable question. You could you can make the argument that over millions of years, Brian, that petroleum products, fossil fuels is renewable, but that's a separate yeah. time context. But that wind and solar doesn't get us there either. And also people don't necessarily like hydro anymore. It's a little bit silly. Well, they like hydro in certain countries, let's put it that way. All of that coming together is it interesting to say that, man, I'm looking at so many products here in my office that are petroleum-based products, whether it's the shell on my laptop, whether it's my mouse pad, whether it's my cell phone, whether it's the office phone, whether it's the cases for transport, briefcase, these hard cases for travel, so many things, printer, ice maker, yeah. all these things, fabrics in some of these clothes and coats and different yeah. things that I yeah. have. So that one's interesting. And then your comment about the pharmaceutical industry, I, this one, you should get a kick out of this. That all sounds great for the pharmaceutical company, as long as it's not emergency use authorization. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then, then what do you do? But I mean, a lot of people don't realize just the, the cycle time and, and capital required for those two respective industries to bring a product to market. Right. And you, you just don't turn on oil. You know, it, it takes a ton of investment. And a lot of failures, actually, uh, to find the a home run. Right. The equivalent of emergency use authorization in the oil and gas industry is basically, hey, you don't need any permits. You don't need any studies. You don't need social acceptance. You can just build it. And that's literally what we saw with uh, COVID with respect to the pharmaceutical yeah. co companies. Yeah. Ah, let's just skip yeah. all the clinical trials and just get right to it, shall we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, right. Anyway. Okay, let's move on here and stay on point. So where we are here now is I'd like to just have you talk briefly because we have new audience since uh, our last update with the company. So just briefly, give us a just a quick shot because we've already started on this, a quick shot overview of Recon Africa. And then I'd like to get into some specifics, namely capital structure in a moment, and then also uh, people at the company, but just give us a quick overview of Recon Africa. So Recon, uh, we're a Canadian uh, company, we're listed in Toronto uh, Venture Exchange under RECO, R-E-C-O, I think you mentioned that. We are uh, headquartered uh, out of Vancouver right now, uh, assets in Namibia, um, that, that, those are our main assets right now, uh, offsetting acres in, in Botswana. We are pre-revenue, so we're, we are in the exploration phase. Uh, but we're, we're embarking on a, a pretty attractive upcoming drilling program. 
that's uh, you're going to really test and unlock what we what we think we have in this concession. So the the company uh, history we we um, we've been public for um, four years, three and a half years now. Uh, they got the acreage in in Namibia 2015. I went in and locked up all their uh, acreage, and then uh, five years later went across and got the uh, contiguous acreage over in Botswana. So they've had the acreage for a while. We're in renewal periods right now. Uh, we just renewed the the main leases on the on the um, block um, last month. I did for another couple of years, um, and we're you know we uh, we're getting ready to drill. We uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about the ESG in just a bit, but the company did the ESG uh, part of the entry into the company right. They they committed ten million dollars into the communities, and uh, I really want an opportunity to talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast because we really have done some remarkable things in country, which is really important for us uh, where we operate. Um, so that's the the Jill, that's the history of the company in terms of the capital structure. Um, you know, we have no debt. We're, uh, we're on the Tron Exchange. Uh, market cap's right around 200 million right now. We have about 210 million shares, common shares outstanding. Fully diluted with 242 uh, million shares. Um, share price has been sort of trading around a buck to a buck 20 on the, on the Tron Exchange for the last sort of year, which is very typical for a small cap company with no activity. Maybe, you know, small caps trade on activity. When we, when we start drilling, our stock has been up around three or four dollar range. So um, we anticipate as we start getting ready for a drilling program in the second quarter that will the liquidity will sort of ramp up as will the interest in, in the share price. So we expect to have some some movement on that going forward. We have no debt. I mentioned that we own our own rig, which is really unusual for a small cap company. They did something really unique four years ago, actually. They bought a rig in Louisiana, put on a boat and sailed it across the ocean and, and rebuilt it over in Namibia. Uh, and that's the rig that we will um, use as upcoming drilling program. Uh, they drilled the previous wells with it back in, with it in 2021. Uh, the same rig that rebuilt it uh, when it arrived in Namibia is, is the crew is going to drill it uh, this summer. So they know the rig really well. So we're, it's, it's a unique position. Typically, oil companies don't own rigs. Typically, you lease it. But uh, what this does for recon provides just a tremendous amount of capital flexibility and cost savings once we get up and going and drilling. Uh, and it's all paid for. Uh, so there's no debt again, so which, is, which is great. Excellent. So that's sort of the history of the company, capital structure, and where we're at. Just a few follow-up questions here on this. Uh, can you just, if you don't mind uh, covering off, maybe some major shareholders that you can mention involved with the company? And then also on the financing front, Brian, you know, mm -hmm. what can you tell us about the company plan uh, to potentially conduct an equity financing at some point during 2024? Well, the, the shareholder base is all retail, probably 98% retail is very fragmented. So we have about 5,100 shareholders, I believe is the actual number. So um, a, a lot of shareholders. Uh, no, no uh, single major stake uh, in that. So, except for some of the founders, um, have um, and and myself have um, major shares outstanding. I think management has around eight percent, I believe, of the common uh, outstanding. You know, that's one of my goals. Actually, is is to to move the shareholder base a little bit more institutional, a little bit longer longer hold, and as we go down this path of drilling and and beyond. Um, so we're we're looking at that. Um, options for that going forward. 
In terms of uh, capital requirements raised going forward, we're right now we're embarking on a dual process. We have a joint venture process going on right now. We opened up the data room uh, just before Christmas, and we're, we hope to have it wrapped up sort of the end of the first quarter timeframe. Yeah, what we did when I came on board is I hit the pause on almost everything and uh, brought in a new team, which I'll talk about in just a few minutes. But we also scraped the old BDR, which was previously in the market, and rebuilt it back up with a new interpretation, new calibration of data, and the story is really, really solid right now. Industry likes it a lot. So that the dual process JV is going on. Um, we'll see what comes out of it. If we like what we see, we'll we'll go with it. If not, we'll we'll look at potentially doing some equity and drilling this ourselves. Just a few words, as you mentioned that they're on people at the company, support service providers that you want to mention. And then why don't we get into the drill program after that? Sure. No, um, you know, I have a I have a great executive team around me. Combinations of folks who have been with Recon for a few years had the luxury of bringing in uh, some new executives with me and also a technical team. So when I came on board in August, uh, I did bring a general counsel with me, uh, Adam Rubin. He's a, a GC who's uh, who started my two previous companies with me. Um, so we've we've worked together for over 20 years now. And Adam's uh, he's much more than a lawyer. He's a very commercial entrepreneurial guy. So he's a he's a problem solver, not a problem identifier. So he's uh, he's been doing a fabulous job and taking care of some big ticket items since he's he's come on board. Uh, the other two individual individuals I'd like to mention on my executive team who who have been here. Uh, first is a lady up in uh, Alberta. Her name is Diana McQueen. Diana is uh, SVP of Stakeholder Relations Communications. Uh, a long industry veteran and uh, a, a experienced government person as well. Uh, she handles all of our communication with stakeholders in, in North America and in Europe, uh, also in country, and uh, really manages our communication uh, with all those important stakeholders as well. It's a really important component of our company. She oversees ESG as well, which is uh, critically important. Uh, Diana has a pretty strong pedigree. Uh, she used to be Minister of Energy uh, for Alberta uh, back in 2000, between 2008 and 15, I believe. She was also Minister of uh, Environment and Water and Minister of Municipal Affairs. And she's involved in a corporate board right now up in Alberta. So uh, great pedigree. Uh, she's doing a fabulous job and a really, really important part of our company. Uh, the other executive who um, uh, stayed on, uh, I was glad he, he was part of the team going forward, was Nick uh, Steinberger. He is the uh, head of our drilling operations. And Nick's been in the industry for about 35 years, a uh, very innovative uh, team leader. Uh, he is responsible for some of the very early stimulations in the shale plays uh, way back in the Barnett Shale back in the early 90s with Mitchell Energy. So a real pioneer in some of that stuff. And, has drilled over a thousand wells in North America. So um, he brings just a ton of experience in drilling operations to the company. Uh, he was responsible for getting a rig for us and, and getting across the ocean, rebuilding it. So he is uh, he's gearing up and he's a happy man now because we're gonna start drilling finally after a year pause. So uh, the executive team uh, is great. And then I, I was able to add um, an SVP of exploration back in October um, by name Chris Sombrinsky. 
Uh, Chris comes to us from Anadarko, uh, ex-Anadarko, um, and I highly recommend it, actually. Uh, Chris has worked Africa quite a bit. Uh, he has 20 years experience. He's worked over 40 countries in the world. But more relevant to what we actually do, he was working in Mozambique, uh, involved in a lot of the discoveries over there and brings that experience to us and has worked up and down the coast of West Africa. Uh, and Chris is a highly technical, highly commercial uh, geoscientist. And he has turned the dial on us on, on technical aspects of our concession and on his leadership. Uh, I really feel our, our company has a, a great understanding of the asset now for, uh, for the first time. And he also brought two colleagues with him. Um, a reservoir engineer, commercial advisor, Jim Ohms, been in the sector for about 30 years, uh, ex-Sanandarko as well. He's worked all over the world, more relevant to what we do. He's worked, was manager director in Ghana uh, for Anandarko. He's done, under, he's done over $40 billion of transactions uh, over his career with Anandarko and Oxy. Uh, he's, uh, he's done a fabulous job. He is responsible for developing our financial model and all the forward-looking models that we do as we um, try to understand what, what the fields may look like that we're exploring for us. So he's doing a, a fabulous job. And then finally, a geoscientist, Roddy Kirkland, who came on board from, uh, with uh, Chris from Andarco, just a, a data hog guy. He's, he's a great scientist. He's tearing apart the data and really doing a thorough job on mapping things. So, so that's the leadership team. That's my advisory team. Uh, you know, a, a CEO is only as good as the people around them. And I have, I have great people around me uh, working on the executive team. Now, in country, we have a, a really, really strong team led by Robert. Over there's a big uh, industry veteran. Uh, he used to be head of NAMCOR, the um, in-country government entity. Uh, very well um, recognized, very well established in the oil and gas sector in Namibia and has done just a great job of representing recon in the, in the industry. And then we have about another 20 people in country on various different levels, some really, really talented people over there. I've been really, really pleasantly surprised uh, at that organization. And that's an important part of what we do because that's, that's people on the ground. These are folks who are going to be dealing with uh, communities that we're involved in. They are the front line of Recon Africa and they represent us really well. So I'm, I'm pleased top to bottom how the organization has turned around in the last five months under my leadership. Lots of experience, and I liked how you characterize it. You know, you as CEO, you're only as good as some of the people surrounding you, right? And I really appreciate that comment. I think that's completely valid and so true. Let's cover off the exploration drill program that's planned. You guys have an upcoming program. Talk some details here, what you can share, of course, uh, because I know this is planned, but it's coming very soon. And then, you know, specific to the program, what do you expect to accomplish on this essentially exploration restart? And what do you think it will demonstrate? Yeah, we're embarking on a drilling portfolio. And uh, I, I use that term because um, I built my career, success of my career on drilling portfolios, not drilling wells. And it's no different than you doing a, a building a stock portfolio. You're going to be much more successful by building a portfolio of multiple stocks and taking multiple shots on goal. That's the same way that I build an exploration portfolio. I want a lot of prospects to select from, but then I want to have many shots on goal so I make sure I have success on a portfolio basis. 
So uh, we're taking that approach and also we're looking for a partner to have that same approach. So we're looking to drill um, up to four wells in this portfolio, uh, two in the full belt and two over in the rift. Uh, we'll probably start with the full belt only because the, the prospectivity of that area is really has enhanced in the last couple of months under Chris's work with his team. Uh, we like the look of those prospects, we like the upside. Uh, so there's a prospect there called Prospect L, uh, was the first one we're gonna drill down to about 13,000 feet, test all the intervals we want. Uh, it's great looking structure, it's large, uh, about 10,000 acres. Just, just for a dimension, if you were to drive from one end of it to the other end of it, you'd be driving for 21 kilometers uh, and still be within structure. So uh, these are these are big beasts. And um, you know, these are important wells because if they hit, we, we unlock a trend here. We don't just unlock the value of that one prospect, but there's multiples beyond it. So we wanna we wanna drill it for successful, we'll probably sidetrack, and we we're actually gonna have testing, production testing equipment on, on site. So we'll be able to test whatever fluid uh, content we, we find in it. Uh, we plan to drill back to back on these two full belt prospects, L and M. Uh, they take about three months to drill each, down to about 12, 13,000 feet. Probably take a break and then move over to the rift and then uh, start drilling some of the rift wells, which are a little bit shallow, or a lot shallower actually, uh, and shorter in duration and uh, drill a couple of those uh, sequentially as well with the same thought process um, being able to either sidetrack and or test anything we find in the rift uh, we're also contemplating a seismic program possibly over in the rift a tighter grid uh, and the reason there is that we really want to understand what the prospectivity looks like along the fault margin which is the main play element in, in the in the rift you know these rift evolves and, and how these evolve is that there's typically a, what we call a string of pearls, a whole series of these smaller accumulations, small accumulations being about 100 million pearls. But you've got to be able to see them and see them accurately. So we may end up doing a, a tight 2D grid uh, prior to drilling over there to make sure we see things really, really accurately. But we're excited about that rift program as well. So that's the sequence. Once we get going, we're hopefully we're probably going to be active for better part of a um, probably well over a year, actually, probably five quarters. It looks like um, what we're planning. Brian, talk just a little bit about uh, two things here. One for this campaign, mm -hmm. what do you expect to see in terms of overall yeah. capital cost for this campaign? Question one there, and then let me couple that also with just for some of the audience who maybe not familiar with the types of systems that we're dealing with in the Cavango Basin. Just talk yeah. about the depths, the formation type, conventional, unconventional, and also fold versus rift. Yeah, uh, first one, capital. So as I mentioned earlier, a typical well in the rift will cost about $6 million to roll down to total depth, and then another million and a half to actually do a production test. Uh, over the Demera, the uh, drilling cost is about $11 million. And the same thing, about a million and a half to do a test. Uh, so the when you roll it to overall program, uh, that's about a $40 million uh, drilling CapEx program without the seismic. Uh, that's two L's in the Marin, two L's in the Rift. If you throw in the seismic and, and testing, that's about a $62 million program. Uh, and this is 8.8 gross that we're talking about. So that's the overall program, CapEx exposure, uh, beginning probably May, June timeframe is what we're looking at. 
and once we get going, it's going to be uh, continuously drilling. Now, in terms of what we're actually drilling, there, there's two very specific play types, the rift and the full belt. They're, they're very different uh, profiles. Now, spatially, they're close together. They're, they're probably five kilometers, seven kilometers away from each other. Our rift play is drilling plastic um, uh, reservoirs. A classic reservoir would be a sandstone, similar to what you'd see uh, out in a, a building somewhere. You walk by, it's a, it's a beige sandstone rock. Uh, we'll be drilling those uh, down to about 3,000 feet. And the, the setting of a rift is uh, the best way to describe it would be in the subsurface. We view it as geoscientists as a picture a canyon forming and a, a big delta coming up and dumping sands into a canyon and forming these big uh, sort of delta um, mar uh, fans along the margin of a canyon. And then that all being buried down the subsurface. Uh, so that, that's what a rift margin play looks like, a big fault margin, a bunch of sands being dumped down, you know, shales going over it, trapping it, and then eventually oil coming and accumulating those traps. So we're trying to find those types of, of accumulations in the rift margin. Now, rift play, basins are very prolific around the world. In fact, about 40% of the world's oil comes from rift margins, rift basins, I should say. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great basin to um, explore in. Some of the biggest basins in the world, you may be familiar with North Sea, for example, is a, is a rift basin. And there's you know, giant fields in, in that basin. Uh, structurally, we have some analogs to it in, in our basin, we feel. Uh, but they can be extremely prolific as well. Uh, when it works, it can work really, really well. So we, uh, we like to look at the rift play. We got a little more seismic to shoot to make sure we image this really well. And the other thing I'll point out is that the, the previous wells the company drilled a few years back uh, were in the rift play. Uh, so they tested the rift section. Uh, they were off structure, they drilled them blind, but they, they found oil in all the sidewall cores. So we, we know that the system's working over here. We know there's oil that's come through and migrated through. Now it's our job to find out where it's accumulated in commercial quantities. So we're, we're excited about that. Now the full belt is just a, you know, it's about five to seven kilometers away distance wise. And the full belt, the best way to describe it is, uh, if you look at a mountain range, Rocky Mountains are full belts. Um, you know, what we have over here is a buried full belt. It's been buried down in the subsurface and covered over with a lot of sediments. But these are large, big bends in the rocks that, that form by compression. And those bends uh, will have um, sandstones in it and also carbonates. Uh, carbonates are rocks you would see down in Bahamas. You walk on the um, out on big platforms that where you may have shallow water. That's a big carbonate platform. Um, we'll be chasing both those carbonates and sandstones in these big folds. Um, but these big folds can be imaged really, really well with the seismic. Uh, and they can be imaged well because they're so large. And um, uh, you can just map them for long, long periods of time. So we'll drill down through that uh, to a deeper depth. They are deeper than the rift, down to about 13,000 feet versus 3,000 in, in the rift. We're going to go through a, carbon, uh, a classic section first called a molden. Uh, it's productive in a, a basin over to the west, but we think we have a good shot at some sandstone intervals in it. And then we'll go down to the, the deeper parts, and the, the other main objective is it's called the octavi. And it's a carbonate. 
Uh, it's, it's fractured carbonates, um, it has good uh, porosity and permeability, which stores all the oil in it. And the interesting thing about this is the Otavi is one of the main intervals in the full belt, but we actually penetrated in some of those wells in the rift. And we actually got oil in, in the cores over there. So we, we, we know that oil uh, is in and around the Otavi carbonate in this area. So we, we feel pretty confident we're going to find something here. It's a matter of how much and, and what phase is going to be. Come back and talk just briefly about the portfolio approach in the terms that you said that the company has tested in the past and confirmed that we have an active system. Yeah. There's oil there. And now yeah. your team is now here to find the accumulation. And of course, yeah. with this comes the portfolio building. Can you give exactly. us just a flavor of what you would expect now that this is basically the first program of essentially trying to find those accumulations yeah. to put people in their chairs about yeah. what it means to almost never do a hit on the first campaign. And so just, <laughs> yeah. just, just talk, put people in the, in the proper yeah. perspective to understand that how it goes from here and what you think is a reasonable time frame to demonstrate yeah. commercial viability. No, the portfolio, uh, you're right. Things um, never go the way you plan. In fact, the other two companies I started, even though both ended up being billion dollar enterprises, the first world I drilled was dry <laughs> in both of those. But you, uh, you learn pretty quickly uh, and you learn from the failures and move on and integrate that into your thought process, which is why our portfolio approach is just so, so important. These are all not independent shots on goal when you look at the Rift and you look at the Demara. So even though you may have a failure on a well on the Rift, you'll learn something that improves your chance of success for the next well. So that's why our portfolio approach is so, so important uh, when you try to open up some of these new plays. Uh, because you uh, you always have a piece of information that can enhance your 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 chance of success on on the next well, and statistically, uh, you just have a better chance of finding a discovery if you drill five wells versus one. If they all have a a one in four chance of success, and you drill five wells, your, your chance of actually having a commercial discovery in a portfolio of five wells is actually really high. It's eighty or ninety percent. So that, that's why um, a portfolio approach on, on drilling um, a new play out is just so important and having the financial staying power to, to stick with it. I've seen so many companies over the years uh, not take that approach and, and um, walk away from a play prematurely, only to someone come in on their heels and then find a big discovery. So we want to test this thoroughly and we want to test this very methodically. In, in both these plays. Now, in the rift play, we're gonna drill down about um, a, a thousand meters, about 3000 feet. Take about a month to drill, actually. They're not deep wells in the rift, which makes the economics look just really, really good. So they're, they're shallower wells and easier to drill. We, we know the stratigraphy, we know the rocks are gonna go through into the pressure environment. So the drilling profile should be fairly uh, known and, and easier to get through. Over in the Demera, we're going to drill down. Most of the wells will drill down to a 13, 12, 13,000 feet. Now over there, we're drilling through some new rock that we haven't drilled before, probably a little bit slower drilling. Uh, and in that case, these wells will take about three months to drill uh, down to total depth. But uh, luckily, we can see these images really well, and we'll be able to track where we are on the, on the size of the uh, profile really well as well.
appreciate all that's excellent and i appreciate you putting it into context for people so they can understand that there's a process to this and it takes time and as you know sometimes us investors can get impatient so we know how that goes for sure yeah uh, yeah talk for me for a moment i, I want to cover maybe two things on the community front first yeah. just overall community work government relations and i really suppose we should add of course the outside ngo management in the sense that we have to manage these NGOs now, specifically, of course, those NGOs who like to run around the world and attempt to disrupt and police essentially under the act of, sure. you know, broad sweeping blanket of environmental shield and basically an yeah. agenda on environmentalism. Of course, they hide behind this as their purpose, which is a little bit odd as well. Yeah. But talk about just those couple fronts and then what yeah. the company is doing on these fronts. And specifically, I'm really interested in hearing about local community and, of course, the local yeah. government front. Well, one thing that I'm very proud of at Recon and, and the founders of the company got this right was our uh, ESG program, the environmental, uh, social, and governmental uh, part of the company. Uh, when they came into Namibia, they committed $10 million Canadian uh, to the programs that we're going to operate. And that's a lot of money for a startup, uh, $10 million commitment. But boy, they got it right. It pays dividends uh, as you build uh, an enterprise in a country like this. We are, we are part of these communities. We plan to be part of these communities for a long period of time. You know, on the community um, side, I'll, I'll give a, I'll outline what we're doing, but I'll give you a story and just how impactful it can be. Uh, the company is drilling 35 freshwater water wells for these rural villages up in the very northern part of, of Namibia. They're solar powered, and these little villages are out in the middle of nowhere. Typically, a village in this area is a couple hundred people. And actually, I went over in, in November to hand over one of these wells uh, to the local government. And it, it's hard to describe what nothing is when people live there, but this this village had nothing. There was trees. There were there were huts in the in the trees. There was no water, of course. Uh, and there's about 200 people, young kids, small infants. Uh, to elderlies in this village. And there's cows and dogs and sheep. And that was about it. And the women had to walk uh, eight kilometers a day, twice a day to get water uh, for the villagers, for the kids uh, for the last 20 years. Uh, they had no potable water. So we drilled a fresh water well here. Uh, for the first time in 20 years, they can turn on a tap and get fresh water. And the other thing I'll mention, one of the reasons why we did this not only just for, for access of water, but when these women would go down to these river um, areas to get uh, the water for the villages, they were having a lot of human crocodile uh, conflict. And they were losing about eight women a year uh, because of this. And uh, that was going on for the last two decades. Uh, so now because of Recon Africa, you know, 36 of these villages have fresh water wells with big 500 gallon tanks and they can go and, and turn on a tap and drink potable water. And if, if you wanna ever see how you can fundamentally change a human being's life, give them some water. Um, you know, we in the Western society take it so much for granted. But when I was there and I saw them come, you know, visit me and they were so happy to see me because I was handing over these wells, you, it, it touches your soul. And it, it, these people had no water. <laughs> You know, and we take so much of that for granted. Um, so I'm, I'm just really proud of, of how Recon has conducted themselves in, in this manner. 
company also gave a million three to COVID during the COVID period of time, which is big for this area. Uh, we're also big on um, uh, scholarships for, for local uh, people. We give post -second, 10 post-secondary scholarships and then seven nursery scholarships for the Camango area. And the, the last one's really important because these women who go into nursing, they'll actually stay in that community up there. So it's, it's great to see that. But we're, we're proud to be part of that program. We track them uh, very closely. We track our marks every quarter to make sure they're doing well, but we're, we're proud to sort of support that part of that community. So th those are probably the, the big highlights of what we, we do. There's lots of other smaller programs that are, are really great things to, that we do. You know, we have a Never Walk Alone program where we, we I think we get $50,000 a year to buy shoes for uh, kids uh, at night so they, they don't have to walk home uh, with no sneakers on or, or running shoes. You know, things like that really um, allow us to be become part of the community that we're, we're involved in. Uh, so that just makes us really proud. You know, on the unemployment side, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that up in this area, northern Namibia, unemployment is high. It's, it's uh, I think officially it's around 55%. Unofficially, it's probably higher, 60, 70%. You know, when we drill, we employ. Uh, in fact, we employ about 1,300 people. Uh, when we do operations up in this area. This is just drilling. Uh, this is cutting roads, debushing, it's manning the, the sites, it's getting water trucks, all the different supplies. Uh, so we, uh, we employ a lot of people. And our local content, uh, when we sublet out contracts, that's a, that's a factor in our equation. It's, it's actually a calculated number that we, uh, we, we want to hit on any subcontractors that come in. And when I go meet the governors uh, over in Namibia, they ask me uh, very, very straight, like how, how many people are you gonna hire? How many locals are you gonna employ? Because of course that's, that's their purpose. But Recon is, is doing their work and employing people. Now, if we have a discovery here, uh, we'll employ tens of thousands of people in this rural area and we'll change their lives forever. You know, in terms of just um, livelihood, um, uh, you know, in terms of what, what the economy can be underpinned by will be just fundamentally different if we're successful here. So we're, um, we're looking to forward for all of that in this, in this area of the world. You know, for a small company, we, uh, we got this right. I mean, I, this is, uh, you know, aside from the technical work we're doing and how we're leading the company, technical excellence, I would say the ESG is right up there as well. Uh, we, we just have a, a very, very strong program that's very proactive. Uh, and gets out in front of it. But fundamentally, it's part of every business decision we make. And underpinning that is we want to be part of the community in which we, which we operate in. I, I will mention, we also have a, a very a well-developed stakeholder engagement plan. And what that means is that we have a plan to speak to officials all the way from the, the president's office in Namibia down to local villagers. And it's mapped out in terms of who we need to speak to, why we need to speak to them, and what our forward engagement plan would be. So when we kick into operational mode, we kick into drilling or uh, hopefully production, uh, we, we have a, a well-developed plan on who to speak to in governments, regional bodies, non-government NGOs, state-owned companies, traditional local authorities, down to the villages, to schools, um, down to conservatories, to water committees. So that stakeholder communication plan is just really important to execute uh, to make sure we're touching all the right 
points all the way down the, the community and government chain. So we're all aligned. They know exactly what we're doing. They know who we are. They know why we're doing it. So we, um, we get this right. That's what we're trying to do. Brian, lots of good stuff there and lots of parts and lots of careful, delicate management on all those fronts. And Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But how many NGOs have you seen out there drilling water wells for the people? How many NGOs? None. <laughs> None. But, uh, you know, you say that, you know, we, we drill 36 of them and if we're bringing a partner um, and I just met with one in Houston this week, I said, listen, you know, if you guys come in, I want you to match our 36 wells. I want you to come in and drill 36 uh, going forward because there's, there's no shortage of villages that can, that can use this stuff. And all I need to do is I need to take them out and show them how it's impacted some of these villages, their human livelihood, and they'll, they'll get it. How do you see on, on the completions of these water wells, are, I'm assuming these aren't manual, that they have some type of pump involved for that, and then also... What are you seeing as the best way to treat water out there? Is Does it need to be treated one? Do you think that like reverse osmosis systems are the easiest way to handle remote areas? Yeah, these little uh, these these are solar powered water wells, so they you know they, they uh, we do have a pump, a small pump on location. Uh, we had to cage it because we had some problems with people stealing it, so we had to cage the pumps. Uh, and then we drill down. I think it's about 200 meters. We drill down to a, a regionally uh, known aquifer uh, that we tested. We sampled it uh, to make sure it's potable with no. Uh, no impurities in it, and uh, I think there's a small filtration system in it, but not not a lot needed actually. It's fairly it's fairly pure water, uh, and then we have typically two to three 500 gallon tanks uh, attached to that water well that store the water when it's not sunny, of course. So you know they'll always have access to water whether it's a rainy season or whether it's a sunny season. Um, that's that's how it works, and these you know these uh. They're not very costly to get done. They're, they're self-maintained. You know, we, we drill these, we get them going, and we operate them for a bit, and then we hand them over to local governments to, to take ownership of and, and we Great. did a bunch of that um, last fall. That's excellent. And as you know, Namibia is a tough place for water. I mean, whether you're talking about uranium mining operations or gold yeah. mining operations in the country that exists, you know, we've had a, there's a desalination plant, there's more planned. Yeah. NAM water has its hands full with water distribution issues. So really, really appreciate what you're doing yeah. there on that because it is, yeah. it's so meaningful for the local people and for the local government. Yeah. Just, let's just imagine that there's some success with onshore in Namibia, you know, something commercially viable economic turns out to be in the basin. Talk about, you mentioned earlier, you said life changing. Yeah. Talk about if there was success, whether it's Recon Africa or some other company, if there was success in the basin, talk about the economic potential and the lifespan of successful operations in terms of direct benefit to Namibia at the local and national level. That's a great question because we're we're in it to uh, to produce oil and, and and generate prosperity for for the the uh, local community, for the region, for the country. You know, I think if we find oil here, we're going to be the first oil production that Namibia will have. It will far outpace uh, the deep waters because of the stuff we talked about earlier, cycle time and ease to, to drill and, and access to infrastructure, all those things are conducive for an early production system. So let me let me just walk through an expected case in the rift uh, scenario that we, we did our economic analysis on. And the rift wells, you remember, are about 3,000 feet deep. They're not, not excessively deep. 
uh, about $6 million to drill. We believe we can get uh, discovery on production about two years after our discovery well. So if we drill that well in 2024, we can bring on production in 2026. Uh, and right now, we, we did a reservoir simulation, uh, which means we, we collected all the rock data and, and the seismic data, and we did a three-dimensional uh, physical simulation of how these three prospects would produce if there were fields. And it's about 100 million barrels uh, between the three of them. We projected out about 50,000 barrels of oil per day facility uh, on this uh, project. Plateaus for about three years and then declines out. These things produce for about 25 years, and that's the life, life of one of these fields. Now, we'll be exploring around us, so we'll continually backfill that, but this is taking three fields and completing it out for its, its life. You know, a couple of things I want to point out. One is the, the, the low drilling cost yields really good cycle economics. Secondly, um, the, the rocks that we're going to penetrate for reservoirs are really, really good quality rocks, good in terms of storage which is porosity, and good in terms of permeability, which is connectivity. Uh, some of the best that you see in the world, convention. These are all conventional. This is all conventional developments. Nothing, there's no unconventional here at all. It's all conventional reservoirs. Well, we have great rocks we're going after. We expect a typical well in this play will come on, on stream about 3,000 barrels of oil per day. And we're going to bring on about 25 of these uh, in, in this field. And each well will accumulate about 3 million barrels of oil, which is really high when you compare it to onshore US. So when you combine all those factors, what that means is the thing kicks off a ton of cash. A year one uh, production at a $70 price tag, this field generates $500 million of cash flow and actually pays out in that first year. After tax, cum cash flow after payout, is about $1.4 billion net to recon. So you, you get a sense on just how, how, how prolific uh, a development can be here if, if successful. PV10 of just those three fields is about $700 million net to recon. Uh, and the F&D, this, this is a measure that we use in the oil and gas fields, how much it costs to develop a field all in is about six bucks a borough, which is really, really good. And the project payout, which means when you start Spending money, how long does it take to recoup it? That's about three years, which is really, really short. So, you know, the, the combination of everything here yields a, a really economically attractive a value proposition. And you, you sort of summarize it by the, the subsurface is working right, if it all hits. Uh, the cost structure is attractive because it's shallow and also because some of the infrastructure is around. We plan to truck this to Guffenstein, which is a rail system, and rail to the, the Walvis Bay and get product on the water. There will be upgrades along the way, but uh, that trucking allows us to get early cash flow. We'll probably replace that trucking with a pipeline, a medium term to, to eliminate trucking forever. But the, the cash flow early is just really important for us. So th this project has, uh, has a lot of teeth to it. And we think we can replicate that, those numbers I just gave you uh, a few more times. Now, over in the full belt, uh, the scale is quite a bit different. You know, we, we think the full belt is, um, you know, we think it has a lot of liquid potential. Originally, it was thought to be a, a gas plate. Now, we think there's, there's a good shot. That we're going to find some oil over here. 
And uh, the profile here is a little bit different. The scale is a lot different. You know, if it's a liquid case, we could see a facility up to about 100,000 barrels of oil per day. Uh, ramps up a lot slower because it takes about 40 wells to get to that number. Uh, the CapEx requirements a lot larger as well. But the, the QM cash flow and, and, and how it generates cash is just, uh, it, it's uh, really, really attractive if, if it is to work with, with some liquid content. So we're just now finalizing those economic models with liquid, gas, and condensate that we'll, uh, we'll be getting ready to, to speak to some folks on. If the fallout works with liquids, then it's a, that's a game changer as well. Thank you for all of that. And I think I think based on that, folks can have a pretty good idea of, of what kind of benefits can come into Namibia as far yeah. as infrastructure, yeah. tax revenues, local jobs. Yeah. I mean, lots yeah. of things. Well, national jobs at that point. How about just, I want to couple this in with my next question. My assumption is you guys intend to prove up a little bit more here before you start having serious discussions with outside parties. But that brings me into my next question is partnering joint venture, M&A, what yeah. have you, and overall strategy, obviously, for the company, Brian, which is to be a producer, but yeah. also that you guys have potential scale here that obviously there's enough room for some other folks. But say what you can here. But what do you see on this front, Brian, and really how it looks for partnering when you might start to have those discussions uh, seriously? and how you would expect to see this portion play out, say, over the next two years? Yeah, no, we're, well, we're in a competitive process right now, so I can't disclose a whole lot other than that. Um, you know, when we opened up the, the VDR, which is the virtual data room uh, in early December, we, we scraped everything that was there previously, rebuilt it up with a new interpretation, new views, new economics, everything. Uh, and, and I really liked what the team had done, has done. I really liked the way they built it up. Uh, I really liked how our interpretations are data uh, controlled, not speculative. It's all data controlled and the building blocks are there for a really, really solid story. <clears throat> now, when we went to market, what I, what I do find is that, you know, there are offshore players that will stay offshore. And I, I get that. Uh, and then there are players who are looking to get into new countries in Africa. Uh, and they may look to get into buy an acquisition, buy and produce a property using their balance sheet. So they may not want a, an exploration program like that. So you have to put those two, those two type of companies in buckets. So you, you have to find partners that sort of fit the, the niche that we're, we're looking at here. Uh, but I will say a couple things. One is industry interest has been high. What I mean by that is when people come in and look at what we have done, they really like what they see. The work really shows really well. It holds together really well. Now, I can't predict the outcome of a JV. You can't predict what a company is going to do. But um, the companies we've, we've spoken to, um, they like what they see a lot. Now, what we struggle with a lot is, is selling uh, some equity, actually, working interest to the market. You know, my explorationists uh, argue that we shouldn't sell anything uh, because we're giving away too much too cheap. And I, and I get that. I gave you some numbers on just what the rift would look like and just use these numbers as a proxy. The PV10 is $700 million and a well is $6 million. And we're going to sell that to a, so a company can come in and, and buy in to a, you know, a four well program in the rift for $24 million and get exposure to PV10 of 700 million and multiples of that. So that, that's a big delta. It's a big swing on entry costs versus value. So we, we have to be careful on, on how, 
how much we we put into the market, the oil and gas market, and sell because once you sell, it's gone. So we what we may do is perhaps sell a small piece if needed, keep the remaining equity for us, and then sell uh, some additional after discovery at an elevated valuation. That that may be a tactic, or we may decide to to drill us on ourselves because uh, it's not a lot of money. And then uh, you know find what we think's here, and then and then uh, start talking to a partner post discovery. All those things are still on the table, actually, and we have some pretty active debates on pros and cons of any one of those avenues, which is great. It's good to have that type of diversity of opinions. Yes, it sounds like some reasonable problems to have. Uh, I don't think the group has any trouble raising capital. And very good points you bring up on the various avenues here, what you guys have on the table. Yeah. Well, Brian, let's uh, stop there for now. I really appreciate the time here to introduce yourself and also talk Recon Africa and the updates. To finish up here, for potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about 210 million Canadian dollars. Why should Recon Energy Africa be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio at this stage? Several factors. One is um, we're undervalued right now, we're undervalued at our market cap. We are going into a uh, highly explosive uh, drilling program that has just tremendous upside ahead of us. So if you're, if you're going to get into a, to a, a play with a, you know, multiples of upside, this is the type of play you, you want to get into. The, the third point I would make out is that, you know, I, I believe Recon is actually uh, an asymmetric risk profile. I mean, a lot of people say it's, it's a high risk investment, it's, it's all or nothing. My view in, and the team's view is it's actually a little bit asymmetric because the, the petroleum system is actually working here. We, we know there's oil in the subsurface. They got it in all the cores. Uh, they floated to surface actually in the pits of one of the wells they, they drilled previously. So, um, you know, we know it's there. Um, the economic limit to develop is pretty small in some of these areas. But the upside, if it works, is, is you know, off the charts. So it, it, it is an asymmetrical risk profile, particularly if you take a portfolio approach. So, you know, I'd point that out to, to the uh, potential investor in our company as well. Fourth thing I'd point out is that you have a world-class team here uh, doing this from CEO down. We've done this before. Uh, this is not the first rodeo for me from, from taking a company and, and building it up and, and drilling wells and finding billions of barrels. We've done this before. We've done this before. So we're, we're doing it right this time as, as well. And then the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave on is that when you stack up all the variables, of trying to to look for and find commercial quantities of oil onshore with subsurface, whether it's the cost structure, access to infrastructure, whether it's the surface that you're going to um, develop it on, you know, this is flat land and government support. This is as good as it gets uh, on the onshore, in my view, when you stack all those variables together. And there are not very many international plays that have this type of explosiveness with all those factors lined up. You know, I'm just, uh, we're really, really keen to get after this for all, all those reasons. And I think this is a, one of the probably most attractive international investments for oil that's uh, at the right price point now with tremendous upside. Thank you for that, Brian. And the best way for folks to reach out to the company. 
Yeah, uh, we have investor relations a person. Uh, his name is Grayson Anderson uh, over in London. You can go to our website. Uh, the email is there. Uh, it's easy to access him. Of course, if you want to invest, we're on the Toronto Venture Exchange. But if you go to our website and, and go to the corporate deck, you'll see the uh, information to get a hold of Grayson. And, and quite often myself or some of the other executives can be available for a, a quick debriefing if needed. But, um, you know, we're getting ready to go in this program. It's going to be pretty, pretty darn exciting. Well, Brian, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you again for the time and best of luck with the company and progress in 2024. Well, thank you for having me. Enjoy the discussion.